Hello and welcome to E3, Energy and Efficiency with Emily. I'm your host, Emily Mottram. This podcast is all about architecture, building science, and female entrepreneurship. So prepare to get nerdy. So, all right. So welcome back to the podcast today, guys. I'm really excited. Maybe you've seen it on Instagram or out there on social media, but today we have Bob Swinburne with Blue Time Collaborative and Gero Dolphus with Mindel and Morse, uh, who built the Sugarbush House in Vermont. And I want to talk about their design collaboration and how they work to create what I think is sort of the ideal scenario for integrated design moving forward, especially in the high performance community. So um, Bob's been on the podcast a couple of times. Feel free to introduce yourself, but we're going to start with Garo. Tell us who you are and what you've been doing. Yeah. Hi, I'm Garo and I am a builder with Mendel and Morse Builders. Um, I started out just as a warm body a few years ago. Um, and suddenly what happened is that the company was in a transition that the people who founded the business in 1981 were looking to retire. And um, Josh Engel, my business partner and I, we started talking um, whether we were gonna continue the business and had sort of a very um, gentle and gradual transition into ownership of the business and at this point both Steve Mandel and Jonas Moores are fully retired and we're doing this thing and the little connection between Bob and us is or one of the many connections I should say Bob back in the day used to um, be a carpenter for Mandel and Moores builders and um, since then we've built many of Bob's designs and um, Bob and I got to work on some stuff before Sugarbush, um, but Sugarbush was definitely a new level on intensity of collaboration and um, because there was a lot more to this project than anything else we had collaborated on before. Yeah. So Bob, do you want to introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit more about you and your connection since you worked as a carpenter for them. Yeah, Bob Swinburne, uh, Blue Time Collaborative. And yeah, I think from 94 to around 2000, I was a carpenter with Mandela and Morris Builders. And I was also designing houses. I think I did five or six houses when I was with them. And so I'd draw them up. And I'd be then out there on the crew laying out plates, um, you know, just building the houses. I came back to the path of becoming an architect and finished um, my internship, took my exams, and I've been um, a licensed architect in Vermont since 2005, I think. Um, and I've been primarily doing high-performance houses since then. I've done a bunch of work with Mandela and Morse Builders as well as other builders and work all over Vermont, often with other builders. Um, I've done a very high percentage of homes for builders. Um, and so this project, the Sugarbush House in Putney, Vermont, was, as Gara said, the first opportunity to really dive into all these things that we've always talked about and really, you know, it was a perfect situation to put a lot of this into practice. Yeah. 
I think it's a really interesting concept, um, one that you worked as a carpenter for a while. So maybe you had something in your background that really led to this design build collaborative, which is essentially what integrated design is. It's a design build collaborative where the builder, the mechanical, everyone comes on early to really hash out the details of the design. So how did that come together specifically on the Sugarbush house? So if, I think the beginning was that um, the client uh, reached out to Bob to look for a house and then um, for a design for a house and um, Bob sort of put us in the mix early on as, as a potential builder. And, you know, this was a particularly slow and time intensive prod progress, just, you know, sort of uh, my getting to know the client and, and sort of a lot of um, walking the site many, many times over. And, um, you know, when you start from a wooded lot to build a house there, it was sort of a, just a very long process until we increased the team to bring, you know, all the mechanical trades and everything else that you mentioned on board. So it's an unusual and um, good situation in that we built like a, a very solid foundation before anybody said, ultimately, let's go, we're doing this, um, which was, you know, paid large dividends later on whenever you run into something that doesn't go as smoothly as you had hoped, like trying to finish a house during a pandemic and stuff like that. So, um, you know, it's, uh, it starts with the, the core of it as far as the integrated um, team goes is really the, the client, the architect, and the builder. And then everything else sort of gets added into that group. So that's really interesting because it, it's kind of give and take. From, from my perspective, I think it's always really important for the builder to join in during the design phase. Um, it's not always the traditional route. Um, I think, like you just mentioned, it's a better route because then the client, the architect, the builder, everybody's on the same page. Everybody knows what's the important criteria here. But how many hours do you feel like you spent prior to ever getting to a point where you might have broken ground and started building this thing you know 50 to 60 hours is a good number to sort of keep in the back of your head what it takes to consult and um you know consult with all the different trades involved um the client and and just put good numbers to a project that we can stand behind and, and work with yeah so, and then in the same respect, Bob, in the opposite terms is, you know, one thing that happens in a lot of really traditional, like architect does the design, hands it over to the builder is that the architect isn't involved during construction. How many hours do you like to plan in a project like this, where, where it's very collaborative with, with Garo to be on site during construction? Um, yeah, there's a lot of, a bunch of things there I'd like to respond bond to in terms of hours um you know there might be five or ten hours before the client even signs a contract where we're really getting to figure out if we want to work together and how we can work together 
and really vetting. And then um, there's the whole planning phase, which I really can't do alone. So I really need the builder involved. Um, Garrow was at the table nearly on day one. You know, I, I the client had approached me and it just seemed like, oh, she needs to meet these folks. And they, this could be the great, great, a, a cool, great opportunity to really work in depth with Vindo and more. So I kind of pushed that a little bit and it did really turn out to be a match made in heaven. So, and I don't know if he did this, but I encouraged Garrow to write up a pre-construction agreement, you know, 40 to 60 hours of helping me, helping the client, helping the design, pricing things out. I mean, that's, there's a lot of effort in there before actually officially starting the job and getting, getting the trucks going. Um, and so, I mean, overall on a project like this, I might spend 300 hours. Um, I could easily spend more. And I think moving forward in the future, I will be spending more because I can see so many, I mean, we talk about trying to perfect this design build, but you know, I have a long, you know, there's always more that could happen. There could be better communication. There could be more integrated design. So every project, it's good to try to push this forward. We made a good leap with this project. We're now working together on another project and we hope to make another big leap. And how can we just keep carrying that forward? So yes, that ends up with more hours, but the result is a absolutely ecstatic about what happened and just so willing to sell you to the next client. Also, just to go back in terms of bringing a team in, there was a big element of forestry in this. The forest was very important. Um, and so we, we brought in the Sawyer who was going to be cutting down the trees and use some of the wood in the house pretty early. You mentioned the client and a really happy client. And honestly, at the end of a project, the one thing that architects and builders really want is the client to be really happy with the project. And I think the projects where there's a really good design collaborative between all of the people on the project have the happiest clients in the end. So there's clearly something there for sure. But you guys mentioned that she had a really high level of trust in you guys to make this project happen. Is there anything that you think led to that? Was it just simply the approach that you took in the beginning, Bob, that said, hey, this is this is the right contractor. I think this is who you should, should work with. Or was it simply that everybody was at the table and it said, yeah, you're, you're going to spend time to have the builder involved or the architect involved through the whole process, but here's why and what's the value there. How do you think that you portrayed that to her that gave her that really high level of trust in the two of you as a team. I think that um, the older and more experienced and the more times I do this, the better I can speak that language and, and, and it's the word endear trust um, and gender trust. I don't know the word. Um, talk the talk really, but then not just talk the talk, but back it up and then have previous clients back it up for you. So, um, yeah, in initially there's very much, I mean, this is a building a house is a huge, huge experience, not just the money, but and it's, it's a huge life changing experience. And it's amazing that people will put that trust in us. So we have to handle that with, 
you know, very delicately and very carefully because it's incredibly important. And, um, you know, over the years, you learn how to talk to people to gain that trust. But as I said, you have to back it up. Yeah, someone recently said it's 80% personality and 20% the the skill that you bring to the table. So having the right team together, listening and collaborating to to understand what was really important. So you, you mentioned forestry. Were there other things that were really, like what was the deciding factor or the most important parts from the outset of design that started this project? Was it the forestry and being able to use the natural wood? Um, Vermont happens to be really great. I'm actually a little jealous of you guys because Vermont seems to be really ahead in trying to use more natural based materials and being willing to, I don't want to say think outside the box because if you look at nature, nature has been building for a really long time, but think about that versus some of the petroleum stuff. So were there some guiding principles when you started the design that either you or the client um, set forth this sort of like, this is, this is a standard or something I think is important. Um, I think I and Garo as well kind of talk that talk, you know, we, we want, we don't want to use toxic materials. We, we are surrounded by um, amazing forests and the knowledge of how to use them. So that, it almost becomes a given. Uh, in this case, the client had come to me and her, she said, I really like the work of, of this firm. And it's a film, a firm over in the Isle of Skye over um, across the Grand Ocean. And it happened to be a favorite firm of mine. And I think there's a lot of parallels in our work. Um, mine is probably more hyper-local. Hyper um, and so, Again, that's talking the talk, and I, I think I can probably be fairly convincing. <laughs> um, not with my kids, however. Um, yeah, it wasn't really even a sales job. It was just, you know, inspiration on the site, and that's where we went with it. And I think good decisions there and learned a lot of lessons. I think one thing is it's just, you know, you start with a wooded lot, and the desire was to keep as much of it as possible. And there was a general sense where the house might go and where the driveway might go, but it requires a lot of imagination to go from that to here's going to be a driveway, here's going to be a house. And, um, you know, we do this kind of thing all the time. The clients don't. You, know, you don't build a house, you know, Many people never build a house. Some people do it once in their life. Lucky if you do it several times in their life. So it's um, a sort of thing that to, in gaining the trust during that process is that we just put a lot of time in. You know, we were was talking with the client the other day about how it sort of doesn't feel like it dropped from the sky and how the driveway, um, doesn't just cut into the property. And that doesn't come from nowhere, you know. The client and I walked that driveway and laid it out probably 10 times and looked at it from all different angles. And 
hooked up to the house and down from the house where it will be and that type of thing. So um, where does the trust come from? It's just spending an awful lot of time with, with people, making the time. Um, and, you know, if you enjoy that experience and it's going to be a good experience for both sides and that's sort of something that um, you can figure out very early on I think and that sort of supports um, supports it through the process um, a lot of it I think for the client and you know Bob may be less aware of that just because um, of our different roles, but a lot of it was kind of vague, you know, we will use what lumber from the side. So, okay, that's cool. So what a maple tree, so we'll probably do maple flooring. So that makes sense. Um, but the strong connection that, you know, made it even more the sugar bush house that you end up with tap holes in the flooring and tap holes in the windowsills and that it's such a strong connection between, um, the site and the house and the finishes that's something that you know you can sort of maybe guess at early on but it's really something that grows out of that process yeah it sounds like a lot of really careful consideration goes into that um my office partner is actually a landscape architect and we spend a lot of time out on site and the one thing that she reminds clients of a lot is the stuff that looks really natural, really easy, like it was part of this, that it didn't just drop out of the sky, actually takes a lot of time and consideration to make it work and look right. And in our current environment, it seems like everything just has to be as quick as possible and as cheap as possible. And that's not really, that doesn't really end up being the best project, for sure. <laughs> Are there things that Mindel and Morse that you do that are just kind of non-starters for you? I mean, Bob mentioned you like to do a lot of non-toxic materials, um, you like to work with the local woods. Um, are there simply things that can't be value engineered out of a project that you guys really as a company just say, this is how we do it. And if you want to do it another way, we're not the right fit here. Yeah. Um not sure it's necessarily a matter of what can be value engineered out of a project because I feel like there's a lot that we do that um, is pretty efficient it is different but it's not necessarily um, a matter of spending more money um, we sort of inherited an attitude about foam and trying to avoid that as much as possible. Um, we've limited ourselves to using foam below grade for many years already, um, if not decades at this point. And um, sort of one little thing that we've introduced more recently is that we try to stick to reused foam, um, which is actually a money savings if anything um, in the budget I think where we are a little further off the mainstream is that we um, don't sheath our projects in plywood anymore 
um, we've now for a few years have pretty much exclusively gone to using board sheathing um, for several reasons. One is to use local materials, um, which is going to be a benefit in the current situation too, um, an unexpected benefit, but we take it. Um, but you know, it also just the way we, the kind of wall systems we like, um, it's peace of mind for us to have something that's as vapor open as possible. So those are little things that are unusual, you know, definitely when our clients have their friends visit the job site or talk about it, um, you basically need to give your clients the tools and the explanation so that they can spread the word or kind of um, explain it to their more doubtful friends who may not be on board with this. Just, so, you know, it's uh, probably another reason why uh, communication is, is very important that if you do things that are a little more outside the mainstream and outside the norm of, of how to do things. We've also, I think, grown more confident to just say, this is how a modern house should be built in many ways, as far as the levels of performance go. Less so, you know, I'm not going to judge anybody who cheeses their houses in plywood. That's really more of a fringe thing. But as far as the level of insulation, air sealing, that type of thing, um, it's not really a discussion anymore. It's, it's what we do and what should be done. And, um, if you want us to build a modern house, that's what you get. I talked to a client who was referred to me by Mendel and Morse, and she said, they seem so dogmatic about some things. And I said, quality. They're very dogmatic about quality. And she says, yes, that's it. And I think she walked away happy with that answer. But <laughs> um, part of, partly it's where we live in Vermont, people don't have, you know, they're open to and, and really ready for um, this more, this this approach that we're doing, both in terms of the integrated process, but in terms of materials and energy efficiency and all these things come together very well in Vermont, more so I think than in a lot of places. And we're finding that it's not necessarily more expensive. It's just different and it takes you know it takes a level of thinking and a level of intelligence that um, some people just are not willing to put in it's definitely one of those things where it doesn't have to be more expensive i'm working on a project in what i would call the middle of nowhere maine it's not actually the middle of nowhere but it's very hyper local very similar what to what you're doing um, they haven't been building quite as high performance, but they've been building with, you know, board sheathing. There's no plywood. There wasn't any reason to use it. They never use it. Um, they go to the local lumber yard. And like you said, in today's current environment, local lumber yard knows how much board sheathing roughly that they use per year. They put aside, you know, a certain amount for them. So they're not maybe struggling with some of the other issues that the cost of OSB, which let's not even talk about OSB for what it is as a product, but you know, it was $10 a sheet before, now it's $23 a sheet and it's getting harder to find. You know, so 
the people who were doing hyperlocal stuff, working with the local mills and the local economies and things, they can keep kind of pushing on in this environment. And yes, you did it a little bit differently. And maybe the first time you did it, it was harder. But every time it gets easier and easier. So like on Sugarbush House, were there details that you guys worked out that you wanted to, um, that you put together and you said, okay, this is what we're doing. And then afterwards you're like, okay, now that we've done this maybe once, maybe we've done it two or three times. If we did it like this next time, we could improve this detail. There are a lot of those. So we did Larson trusses on this building and there's probably a million different ways how to construct those. So there was a lot of discussion about that before, during, and now that we're about to do it again and now again. So um, uh, window details, how to install those um, is always a discussion, especially depending on what your siding detail is and, and so on and so forth. So it's, um, the list is probably much longer than this, right, Bob? I'm just thinking that uh, a lot of what I do as an architect is try to set up situations so that the people building it, not just the clients, but the people building it can fall in love with it and act as my design surrogates. You know, I want them to be as fully invested, not just in the job and in um, going to work every day and pounding nails, but I want them to be invested in the design. And I really started to see that happening. Um, on this job and sometimes you know in the past I've had it happen where I've we've gone through details on projects and then I see the builder back at his own house doing the same detail on his own project on his own house because just because we had that level of conversation and maybe it's a new detail maybe it's a new way of doing things but it just makes a lot of sense you know I call it carpenter modern because it's it's it's, it's sort of this more pure form of modernism in that you do what works as opposed to what look good, looks good. And ideally, it ends up being both. But in order to achieve that, you really need to be not just the architect doing it. You need, it, it that really requires a team approach. Yeah, so, so one of the, um, the importance of you know, the building, the architect having a ton of conversations is um, so that the builder, when it, all starts to happen knows what matters and what doesn't matter. You know, there were situations where I looked at it was fretting over an elevation and I was um, then taking it back to Bob and Bob was like, well, this actually doesn't really matter all that much. That's what I really want to see. This is not a big deal. And those are the things that, you know, are really important for the builder to know and then to take it to, the rest of the bunch, the rest of the trades that are involved, the carpentry crew and so on. It's part of the importance of being involved early on for the builder or to even see in the more recent project that we're working on um, over the summer is just the experience of watching the design process unfold. Like uh, you see something and I'm like, this doesn't quite make sense. I can't put it into work, but this doesn't make sense to me. Then you see the next version and it sort of all becomes more focused. And, you know, by the time we're actually looking at something that we're about to build and like, 
I'm starting to get it. There's a lot that, you know, is going to evolve as we go along that you experience a building and in the space and it's like, this is cool or this I didn't expect to happen. But, you know, it's, it's a long process and to be involved in that early on helps you to just know what to look out for, what to really um, pay attention to and what are the parts that, you know, we do it one way or the other, it's going to be fine. So that's sort of the, the big part. Yeah, this was a, a special project in many ways. One of the things is like, you know, you have your electrician who lives in a traditional cape and it's like drives up and starts taking pictures of this house halfway that we're done. And it's like, this is so cool. This is, you know, it's a house that has two shapes reaching into each other. And for the longest time, only one of them was up and the porch carport showed up later. And then it was like, oh my God, now it makes sense. Like this looked totally stupid until now. And, you know, there's a lot of that that's just makes for a fun experience for everyone um, involved. And I think this was, we talked a little bit about um, stock plans and stuff like that before we started recording. Um, and, you know, there are a lot of situations where um, the value of, you know, as a builder, we get asked this question all the time. Do you need an architect to do this? Can we do something else? Would you like us to just grab something from this place or the other and build from that? And the connection between a house and the site is more so than you know, what it looks like and what the finishes are and what kind of style it is. That is sort of the, in my opinion, the, the big value added that comes from involving an architect aside from many details and quality that comes from it. But that's sort of the thing that tends to be overlooked before a project really takes off or when people are struggling with that question, should we even be involving an architect in this or not? talking a lot about architects but i'm the builder his fashion no actually what you said makes a lot of sense and we've talked about stock plans and you know someone says oh i love that house can i build it on my site and you know maybe bob and i are just different in the architecture style that we have but like you mentioned the site makes such a big difference and the floor plan is kind of the easy thing to do like all right here's the floor plan so like okay you kind of like this floor plan and yeah there's some like Roofs and stairs are a little bit difficult, but you know, some of the design details that made it into the sugar bush house, like the fin detail that you did on the exterior that has shadow patterns on the house and the screening and the shading, some of that stuff was directly related to this particular site and how you felt on this site and where the light comes from on this site. And those things, you know, they don't happen by accident. You know, something that doesn't look like I just plunked this thing down here. Like, sure, you know, does this footprint or, you know, I have a couple of semi-custom plans that we've built more than once. And I feel like when you're involved in the site process, even if you start with the, the footprint of that house, the house gets really changed and modified based on the site that it then lives on. In terms of Garrow and his business, me and my business, we want to do the projects where it is important to people, as important to people as it is to us. And as you can hear from talking with Garrow, he can operate 
on a very high level of conversation about design. Um, and the people who work for him can too. And that's, you know, that's just like heaven for an architect. And I'd be stupid to ignore it. And I see so much potential in it. You know, we can do so much more. You know, this was a great start. These are the houses that other people's houses are built from, right? <laughs> you know, they're, they're the, you worked all this stuff out and people go, I want that the reasons that other people who, who maybe haven't built this level of house don't understand is the quality of all of the things. And I don't just mean durability quality, like Garrow, obviously you guys have a really high level of like, this is what we will give to you for quality and durability of what we put together. But the quality of the space, the indoor air quality, how you feel in it, the light, the way the materials work together. I mean, you used a lot of natural Vermont materials. It feels like it belongs in Vermont, you know? Those tangible things are maybe the stuff we don't talk about enough that make it so that you want to stay there. You know, this whole idea that we need a certain amount of square footage. To me, if you have a really well-designed house, it appeals to somebody and it will always maintain its value yeah i mean i think that's that's true for what are the kind of houses that ended up being really old um and are still around those are houses that you know for the design beauty function all of that made sense for more than one generation and that's why there's houses around that are several hundred years old and there's many houses that were built that are not around for you know a variety of reasons and I have something to say to that too, because on BS and Beer, we just did this whole thing on preservation and I had to stand up for all the modernists in the room because they were talking about preserving things that are, you know, 1800 years old and the value to that. And what I think they were forgetting is part of the reason why people like to preserve those things are the ones that were really well constructed, went back to craftsmanship. And we used to consider building craftsmanship. You know, they were the artists. They had a lot of, um, they put a lot of value in the things that they built. And that's part of the reason why the good ones lasted for a really long time. But you're doing the same thing now and with modern design. And that's something that I think there's a disconnect in the trade industry as a whole is people aren't seeing the the builders and the architects out there who are really spending the time in the craftsmanship so that those buildings have the same value and presence as the ones that we're trying to save from 200 years ago. Yeah, and I mean, a lot of those 200-year-old houses have terrible floor plans and people just sort of squeeze themselves into them. And the most successful ones have been renovated with an eye toward quality. Um, and I think what we're trying to do, you know, this Sugarbush house, yes, you can, you can label it modern or modernism, but, but we weren't really even thinking about that. We were doing, we were doing what was right for the materials, for the client, for the site, for the, the shape of the house. And we we're having a little bit of fun doing it. And Oops, we ended up with something that's modernist, but also very high quality. 
I think the attention to detail, no matter what style it is, is what makes people like it. You know, I think that even people, like you said, your electrician lives in a cape. He probably likes his cape. He was maybe attracted to the cape, right? But he still could understand why the more modern structure that you ended up with was really cool because it was really well done. It had this level of thought that went to it that was beyond just like, okay, these two roofs fit together. And, and I think, like you said, they have terrible floor plans, but those terrible floor plans worked really well 200 years ago when we lived differently. And that's my biggest problem with preservation is trying to keep things that don't function for what we're doing today. And let's talk about the craftsmanship. If you love that beautiful molding and the detailing and all of that, great. Recreate, rework that into something that's functional for today. Yeah, think about why the decisions that went into why it was done in the first place back then and, and you know, recreate that decision tree nowadays. What's, what are the influences? You know, back then the influence might might have been a builder's pattern book. It might have been something that was referencing, like Greek Revival is a reference of a reference of a reference and it's become its own thing. And so when we're doing things, you know, we're working with very thick walls and how do you trim out windows and so forth. And we're doing what makes sense and what looks beautiful to us. And, you know, I don't... It, I, I don't want to get into those arguments where I, I say, oh, this building is ugly, that building is ugly, that building is pretty. I really, really try to avoid that. Um, and that becomes a very personal thing, and we have to be aware of that. And so sometimes clients do things that are because they're – and you have to go inside their head. Are they referencing a childhood home and the moldings that were in that home? And that's really important to them. Nostalgia as a design influence should not be um, dismissed. It should just be recognized. And part of the design process with clients is really to have them – to bring them to a level of design consideration where they can understand all these levels of decision and understand what I'm doing that much better. Or, you know, if I'm pushing them towards one thing, I want them to be able to not just trust me, but to understand me and, and understand themselves. And, you know, so it becomes the right decision for everybody. And that even can go all the way down to the, the cap on the baseboard. When you're doing something custom like this, it goes down to buy-in from every person on the site who, you know, you said your roofer had never used panels that were this long or whatever. The traditional model is the whole, like you design it and then it gets put out to bid. And I don't, that's a myth that somehow in our industry, whatever the lowest bid is just means they didn't understand whatever the value was in this. They didn't understand kind of the importance of it and they actually get better pricing when you've figured out a lot of this stuff from the beginning because you know you have subcontractors who are willing to try it and you know that you can um you've worked through the details so that every other week you don't have to have the same conversation about what's happening here or what's important here yeah so for us it's a, it's a couple of things so one is um you know the working with us the same set of subcontractors so that we 
don't have to have a new conversation about air sealing every time we run a wire someplace. Um, so it's all of that, but the other big advantage that allows us to do certain things is that we, uh, we are framed to finish with our own crew, or in this particular case, we were setting the foundation forms ourselves too. So um, that allows you to, um, you know, communicate design intent from the framing stage on forward. It allows you to um, get the buy-in to, you know, hey, this time we're not only air sealing as usual, but on top of this, we're shooting for passive house here. So we got to be extra careful and, you know, we're going to test this a bunch of times throughout the process and chase down whatever we may have missed. Um, that stuff is just, you know, or, or things like um, using board sheathing. If I hired a different framing crew every time I built a house, that wouldn't happen. It's just that, um, you know, there was a lot of pushback the first time around and the second time around we were like, well, we've done this. We know this doesn't take any longer than plywood. And there's actually a lot of advantages to it because you can have fewer people on a job working because handling that stuff is different than, um, you know, throwing three quarter inch ply or five eighths ply on a roof. Um, so it's a house like that, it just doesn't, there's a lot of lead up to that and keeping a lot in house, um, working with a tight knit group of people on this, that's sort of what allows us to do that. And that's why you can go to the next set of prospect prospectives clients and be like, yeah, we can do this again. We can go, I'm not going to do it again, but we can, you know, push further than this because of, of the set of people we have to work with. I love the idea of panelized construction and that level of detail. It's more expensive generally. And so until more can be done in the factory, it, you know, it fills a need in the market. Um, but then you go back and you look at people who can still stick frame on site with all wood products in a fraction of the time. And it makes you kind of wonder like, okay, how does this work? Well, framing a house, building a house is like a dance and there's a ebb and flow and everybody has to be aware of where everybody else is. It's like a dance troupe that has danced together for years is going to have a much better product than um, some people who just came together for the dance. The main thing that I was, while I was explaining how much of of the work we do in-house is just that you know, the um, the fun part about the BS and Beer show and all the podcasts out there and your interviews with people from across the country is like you, you get a sense for, um, you understand why, oh, what we do doesn't make sense to those people and what, what they do doesn't make sense to me and I wouldn't, why wouldn't they do it this way? And it's just sort of, um, I think really important to keep in mind like what our infrastructure is, what, what we have for, for skills and, and, and companies out there. Here, for instance, there wouldn't be framing screws. It's, it's not, you know, like 
the greater Boston area where, you know, you, you could just sub every section of the carpentry to different speciality people. We don't have that. Um, and, you know, it allows for a lot more, um, allows for more experimentation. It allows for um, careers that are ultimately a lot more colorful because folks get to do different things. Um, uh, probably careers that are a little more, a little more gentle on the body because it's not, you know, only about locking LVLs through the landscape. So um, let's sort of a little glimpse into what, what construction is like around here in, um, in our neck of the woods. Yeah, so what we do is very, very specific to where we are, and that's a that's an important part of green building. Um, that hyper local, what's in you know, we're not doing bamboo flooring. We're not, you know, even granite countertops. Where is the granite count coming from? And we have really nice options for stone that come from within you know twenty five thirty miles of here. Um, this is a lot of. I mean, we didn't really cover that, but there's a high level of that sort of decision making that goes into every design. And again, that's not for everybody, but that I think is a base part of doing the right thing and green building and high performance building. Thanks for tuning in to the E3 podcast. I hope you guys have been enjoying these episodes as much as I have. I've had some really interesting guests, a lot of great professionals in the building science and architecture and building realm. So thank you to all the guests that have been on. If you're enjoying the podcast, like and share on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or leave me a comment on the website. And if there's somebody you'd like to hear from or you'd like me to have on the podcast, send me an email, emily at matramarch.com. Otherwise, have a fantastic weekend and we'll see you again next week.